The following is a presentation of Dating Kinky. Kinky connections and kinky education. We're kinky done differently. What women and other wonderful humans want. A frank and fun discussion about the way people approach each other for romance, relationships, friendships, or other partnerships that make us happy, as well as an intimate discussion about how to connect with our own authentic self, with questions asked by a guy. And now, here is your host, John, or as we call him around here, hi there, catsuit. Hello there, Nookie, and welcome to What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Writing is such a wonderful art, and today on the program, we get to celebrate 10 years of writing with an amazing blogger who takes a look at sex, kink, and other such femdom things and puts them in a perspective that we can all relate to. Miss Pearl is a writer, blogger, YouTuber, and community organizer and moderator. But on top of that, she's a lifestyle femdom. As one of the most underrepresented identities in kink, she's used her many talents to create an oasis of content with steamy fiction, thoughtful essays, and a unique and often vulnerable as it is, passionate window into her life as a dame. This month, her long-standing blog celebrates 10 years of success with an appearance on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. It's five questions about memorable firsts. We call it the first five. First time you ever published a work either online or in a publication. Okay, well, this is a complicated question because I was publishing vanilla stuff before I was publishing kinky stuff. Mm -hmm. So you could say it was about circa 2006 when I got things that were published worthwhile. If you were talking about blogging, I've been doing that since I was 14. Um, so that's a way back. And if you talk about kink blogging, I translated from doing little articles on FetLife to doing general blog posts in 2011, which is how this is my 10-year anniversary of blogging on this blog, not altogether. So finish this sentence. My first blog ever at age 14 was about... Um, I was just doing random little pieces of fantasy stories, and then I was trying to deconstruct the nonsense of my family. <laughs> that sounds amazing. First time you ever realized that you were a little bit different. I don't know. I'm on the autism spectrum, so it was more realizing that everyone else wasn't the same as me. A beautiful answer and the best answer I've ever gotten to that question. First time you ever were involved in a kink scene in your mindset coming out of it? Well, again, this is where it goes into kind of lukewarm water for what you may be comfortable putting on air. 
like many teenagers, I began exploring my sexuality when I was not at the age in which you'd want to publish this for titillating purposes, but for purely educational purposes, I first started exploring kink when I was about 15 with similarly aged people in a safe environment gradually escalating. And my viewpoint out of it was, this is normal. And I didn't think anything particularly special of it. Uh, because it's my opinion that a lot of kink is actually very easy to pass from the just play wrestling with other peers into actual kink. Um, a lot of people think that it's this formal bells and whistles, 88 different ways of doing things when mostly it's just the same thing you're doing only more. And the traditional fifth question, first time you ever received a dick pic and your reaction to it. It actually took a long time before I received a dick pic, although I had to deal with real life flashers when I was even like a little kid, because that is the consequences of living in this wicked world. Um, dick pics themselves have been fairly thin on the ground. For the most part, it just tended to be pics in guys' profiles as their first profile pic, or it would be on somewhere like Caller Me or Caller Space, as it's called now, and they'd be more likely to send you butthole. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jesse Sage from Peep Show Media. Peep Show Media is a multimedia magazine bringing news and stories from the sex industry. Be sure to check out our website at peepshowmedia.com for essays, porn reviews, events, interviews, news stories, and more. Also, make sure to listen to our podcast, The Peep Show Podcast anywhere you get podcasts. And for a bit more of a personal glance into my life, make sure to check out my January 15th interview on what women and other wonderful humans want. What is your fantasy? Do you have a secret? We all have sexual fantasies or secrets. That's what my show is all about. My name is Nikki, and I'm the host of In Bed with Nikki. In this show, it's all about sex and the fantasies that people have. Reading from my emails directly and anonymously sent to me, together we will explore the experiences of everyday people, just like yourself. Often, this is the very first time they've told anyone else about them. You can find In Bed with Nikki on Podchaser, Spotify, Apple iTunes, and anywhere else you find your other favorite podcasts. And remember, for every problem, there is a solution, and I happen to call it an orgasm. And until next time, enjoy. Are you liking what you're hearing? Check out the Total Archives wherever you find your podcasts. And please remember to subscribe so you don't miss a minute. And while you're there, help John out by giving him a rating and review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's get back to what women and other wonderful humans want. Back on the show with Pearl. Oh, Miss Pearl or Miss Pearl. There's a lot of different ways we can call you. And I understand that you have some very interesting thoughts on titles and names. So this gets a little bit complicated in the kink community because a lot of people will put their title out there, but it's not clear how much dynamic they want. I go by either Pearl or Miss Pearl, and I'm equally comfortable with either. 
I leave that up to the other person because I know it's presumptuous to ask someone to call them miss, but I picked miss because it's the least over-assuming title you could ask for. It's something someone at a coffee shop might call me if they were being cutesy. So I felt it was less awkward than being like, I'm mistress so-and-so. And then you have people who don't feel comfortable calling people that if they're not in a relationship with them. And having the miss also means there's another group of people who aren't really comfortable just calling me Pearl. They like it more formal. As for the O in the O Miss Pearl, there's kind of a story about that one to do with URLs. So I started out with the handle Miss Pearl or Miss underscore Pearl. And then I went to go register my domain name. And much to my annoyance, Miss Pearl was already registered. And if you go, you can find there's a www.misspearl.com, which is a vanity um, website for somebody's dog. And <laughs> the website's been up for a long time now, such that I'm not even sure if the dog is still alive. But I feel it's not politic to go to www.misspearl.com and ask him, so when the dog dies, can I have your like URL? That, that feels like it would be mean. And this person is super into their dogs. Like they have published an album inspired by their dog. So this is not one of those things where they created it at a whim and they'll forget. We are celebrating with this podcast as of actually today, it is your 10th anniversary as this podcast airs of mm -hmm. your blog going live. When you started your blog, could you have imagined what it became? I think it's mostly that I realized what I hoped it was going to become to a fair quantity. And in some ways, I was more successful than I expected to be. I started it because there simply wasn't much porn for me as a repository for my erotica. And once I had the blog, because I already had a lot of prior blogging experience on more vanilla things, talking about my other experiences there, and it did what it's supposed to do, which is provide a longstanding anchor on the internet for people like me and their counterparts to find someone, anyone like themselves. And I've left it where it is, even though blogging itself is very much like it's a dead art. Um, the blogging community such that it was is long past. Um, where the communities are are mostly now on websites like Reddit or Discord, or they're moving increasingly to video, either YouTube or TikTok. But it's always been helpful to maintain that as a foothold because I own my own blog. That means that I'm less at risk of being hit with internet censorship, which is a problem for anyone who's on Reddit or TikTok or even on Discord, as you might or might not be aware with its recent not safe for work server bans. When you started your blog, you probably had a certain thing in mind, which was to fill your mind with all the things that are good. 10 years on, you have covered so many different subjects. Give our audience and those who may not have read your blog an idea of all it encompasses because it is so much. So for the most part, the goal of my life was to provide a window onto a lifestyle femdom. And there's some complexities around the term lifestyle in the first place that was not talking about the professional experience, which is a perfectly valid, wonderful thing, but there is a lot of information out there on that and there's not much on it. 
that talked about desire from my perspective on the presumption that I can't be the only one who feels this way. And when you go to my blog, you're going to find hardcore, really rough, dark erotica. You're going to find lighthearted, happy couple erotica. You're going to find real life anecdotes, erotic and otherwise, about my relationships and how kink has influenced them. You're going to find comedy articles and funny lists. You're going to find lengthy theory essays on kink and how I think the world works and how I think human interaction works, which have proven to be surprisingly successful. Apparently, I know what I'm talking about more than I expected. And of course, you're going to find lots and lots of angry rants. And one of the nice things about Femdom is it's one of the spaces where if you're identifying as female, you're allowed to be a little bit more honest about how you're feeling, which is probably one of the biggest things I like about the subculture. You talk about lifestyle Femdom as opposed to professional. And yes, many people are familiar with that because that is what is prevalent, especially on social media like Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or anything. Lifestyle femdom is something that is based on intimate connections, and there aren't a lot of them in most cases. It's very focused on a person or a group of people. What was it that attracted you to the lifestyle of being a femdom? Well, it's my opinion that the BDSM culture that we kind of shook out to be isn't absolutely necessary. It's just a collection of odd traditions and best practices that sort of stuck together. So when you're talking about BDSM, it's important to make a distinguishment between the fetish set, which is just part of the normal spectrum of human sexuality and the culture, and the culture is the best possible way to communicate and receive what I want with somebody else without having to do extra explaining and basically being completely alone in the world. Whereas the fetishes weren't really something I had any choice about. At that point, it's basically what the fetish fairies gave me. And I had it before I had what you could determine to be anything that you call a sexuality. It just grew in as who I was. I just don't think that kink in itself is actually that abnormal most people seem to have at least some kinky fantasies. And as far as femdom over anything else in BDSM, I decided fundamentally, although femdom as a subculture tends to have a bias towards professional femdom, on the other hand, I find that it tends to have less gender bias against women than the mainstream BDSM scene set tends to, which indeed in itself could be a bit of a confusing thing to say because BDSM is an alt culture. Your first fetishes, and very much uh, like mine, were discovered before you pretty much knew what the sexuality was behind it. What were they, and when did you know that suddenly you did have a fetish? I didn't have any context to know that people didn't have any fetishes. And much of my life and my success in relationships has been assuming that most people are not what is defined as vanilla. It is mm. so rare for me to meet someone who is actually 100% uncomplicated, very straightforward vanilla that has nothing bound into their sexuality that I'm starting to wonder if it exists. It's a big question to ask that because I think we have to also examine our concept of what's romantic. 
because this is often also bound up not just into sexual attraction, but romantic attraction. And we have so many stories of captivity and daring do and people being chained up or rescued in our romantic stories that it makes no sense to say that this was something that most people don't end up being attracted to. These things are mainstream. Things that appeal to me pre-sexually were, say, watching Disney's Sleeping Beauty and seeing the prince get pounced and tied up and then chained up in Maleficent's dungeon. And this was emphasized for dramatic purposes. And my feeling, looking at some of the additional artwork for those scenes that the Disney illustrators had produced, was that somebody liked drawing tied up humans, but there is so many images of the common things that we fetishize that are skirting the line of what would even be considered sexual, that it's impossible to remove these influences from us. It's part of our ability to understand story and be human. Do you think that when the Disney animators or the Disney producers sat back and came up with these stories, that they were trying to basically be themselves and show a part of their thought process? Or do you think it kind of happened by accident where we took what they drew and created our own fantasies around them? Yes. The question you're asking is one that um, any literature nerd will tell you the death of the author when you're examining a work. It's very clear that when you're making a work of art, you're going to put a little piece of your, yourself into it, either your aesthetics or your beliefs about what the audience's aesthetics are. In the case of the people watching it, any tour of fandom, as far as fan fiction, will show you that people can take the bizarrest things and mutate them into the thing they want to exist most in the world. I don't think that the people who did the Disney cartoons as illustrators were necessarily expecting, I will do X and then Y will happen. I think they thought this is aesthetically interesting. And I think a lot of kinky people don't necessarily put two and two together of what they're into for all the pieces because it doesn't seem like there's a way to assemble it. As far as the subculture, I've also noticed people who are into BDSM are humongous nerds. They are <laughs> just as much nerds as someone collecting Simpsons paraphernalia. True, it may orient around things that are more sexual than not, but you can't say that you're any less nerdy than the person who owns, say, 300 Barbie dolls if you're collecting, say, 300 pairs of high-heeled shoes, or you really like looking at action heroines in cat suits. These are all perfectly reasonable, but they all grow out of our natural relationship with things we encounter in fandoms and fiction and social dynamics in our lives. When you had your first romantic connection, did you have to introduce the fetish or kink to them? Or did it just happen naturally where they had it and it all came together? By the time that I was being sexually active at an age that was more appropriate, I was with peers who grew up on the internet. So we all had approximations. It didn't necessarily match up though, because we were exploring it. Actually, for my first couple of partners, although I was able to do some exploring as a dom, the biggest problem I had 
was that they were more in- oriented around the idea of being a male dom themselves. Mm. And because I'm also a masochist, it was easier to take the path of least resistance, even though ultimately having had considerably more experience, it's not what I want. And I am a terrible submissive. <laughs> and what makes you think that? I am a terrible submissive because the psychological experience I get with what people might associate with bottoming is not the one that dominants are looking for to get from their partner. And there's a number of behaviors I do that are just fundamental to my psychological mindset. If I'm bottoming and I'm receiving someone, topping me, giving pain, trying to control me, I will be working on trying to get into their head to manipulate them and figure out how to get what I want out of the scene. My masochism has never been a barrier to my dominance. Further to that point, I learned through some very understanding partners, it can be very hurtful to them to be putting themselves out there with all the vulnerability to be dominant and then discovering that I'm capable of going from playing what seems to be the perfect vulnerable role to a very reserved, pulled away person. And a couple of times of basically unhorsing my poor partners and them being genuinely uncomfortable with it taught me, no, don't do that anymore. That's bad. What is it about being dominant that makes you happy? Um, When I am dominant with a partner, it is the most intense connection I can get with them. You can't really describe it without moving into the territory of hyperbole and metaphysics of it is the moment in which two become one. It is a perfect understanding of the other person. It is a call and response. The only experiences I can compare it to is if you're dancing with someone who's a good partner dancer, or if you're singing together as a group or performing music, when you start to harmonize and sync up. And it's a very similar sensation. I love the fact that you talked about call and response because I've been talking to a number of people and I will include Mr. Steinman Blue out of Montreal, mm-hmm. another one of your, uh, your fellow Canadians. We mm-hmm. have been talking about trying to teach a class called Improv for Kinksters. Yes. And the idea is to learn call and response or basically the idea of yes and accepting the gift that is given to you and moving to the next logical step rather than the step that you're trying to predetermine. Yes, there's definitely an overlap between improv and role playing and being good at BDSM as far as activity with a partner. I think a lot of people forget that as much as dominants do things and we get very hung up on the dominant doing this, the dominant doing that, the dominant having a dominant aura, that it's really a power exchange. You aren't going to be going anywhere unless the submissive is putting just as much effort into it from their end. And I think that's a very key part of the lifestyle side of it is capturing that mutual exchange and nourishing it. One of the things I notice about you, and please take all of this as a compliment, is the fact that the first time I met you and the first time I saw you on Zoom and the first time I talked to you, you seem like a very sweet person. And I can't imagine you being dominant. However, when I saw the pictures that you sent to me for the social media, I went, that's a dominant person right there. How much of the 
and I, I ask this sometimes of fetish models, how much of Miss Pearl is in you and how much of you is in Miss Pearl? I don't see my dominance as a persona. Now, the pictures that I sent you do have a little bit of like, they're low hanging fruit. Some of them involve me wearing tight fitting vintage latex, which that sort of thing is going to necessarily ring fetish bells because that's where most of the fetish art that we see draws its core inspiration from. That's what I mean is it's a fandom. There's a lot more going on here than just um, women in charge. There's very specific artworks and frameworks for it. Um, I could joke and say, oh, you can't, don't think I'm very dominant. It's the pigtails, isn't it? It must be the pigtails. <laughs> but the reality is what you're seeing right now and what, um, alas, the audience who only get to hear a recording and aren't getting the whole me is very much the aspect of my dominant self. When I'm dominating, I'm smiling, I'm connected to the person, I'm very considerate, but also I believe that the twin of sadism is empathy. You cannot enjoy recreational sadism unless you're an empath you have a lot of empathy because you need to be able to feel and understand what the person you're topping is experiencing. Um, I don't do a lot to play up being like the dominant stereotype. And I very much fall away from a lot of the advice of find your persona, find your inner self or fuck that noise. No, I don't do that. Figure out the best way that allows you to be 100% you. If you're a person who has multiple stuffed animals in your bed, that is not at odds with that. If you're a person who cries easily when someone yells at you, you can still be dominant. Dominant is my sexuality. It's like, I compare the experience as being gay. You don't have to be a stereotypical gay person to have an attraction to people of the gender you identify as. I want to go back to the idea of connecting. Uh, and I know that you currently have a partner, although borders are keeping you apart. But when it comes to connecting with you, what are the things that really make you go, this is going to work? And what are the things that will make you go, not in a million years? Some of it is going to be the serendipitous stuff that's required for a vanilla relationship as well. There's just going to be aspects of physical aesthetics and otherwise. But I see the common pattern of people I connect well with. They are imaginative They and they have a strong ability to convey that imagination back and forth. And the other thing that tends to lead to a lasting relationship, other than the ability to do that call and response, is the fact that they tend not to be very dictatorial about how I should be. Mm -hmm. And my, I, like, I have a distinct type. I'm super good friends with one of my exes. And whenever there is someone in my life, he can point at them and be like, woo boy, you have a type. It's like nerdy and very wound, like incredibly wound up, buttoned up tends to be the effect I go for. Interesting. Um, occasionally describe my type as being like imagine beaker from the muppets only he's never been allowed to let it out ever <laughs> i can picture that but what is it about the wound up person that gets to you um i'm not entirely sure because it's a type thing if i had to guess it's some of it is like meeting like that um 
I'm very good at getting into the heads of people like that and understanding where they're coming from because of who I am. And again, this goes less into me as a dominant and more into me as a person with autism, that there are a lot of experiences that I'm having that people who tend to be very like uptight and careful also tend to have as well. And some of the people that I've been interested with are not surprisingly also on the autism spectrum. And that probably feeds into it. I don't know if you can hear the many sirens that are going off, but I have a distinct <laughs> alibi. I've been here at all times on Zoom and recorded with timestamps. <laughs> that is the perfect alibi. Hi, this is Jane Boone, the author of the novel Edge Play. It's a revenge fantasy where the big short meets 50 shades of gray. Only the women wield the whips and the billionaires submit. You can find it at Amazon in paperback or for your Kindle. And be sure to check out my episode with Tara Indiana right here on What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want. Thank you. Realizing that you're polyamorous can be a wonderful insight. The Polyamory Dating Guide is a book about finding other people who share your view of polyamory and want to share it with you. This book includes a variety of sections on poly-specific dating, such as navigating online dating with a review of poly-specific dating sites and how to make a profile that works, real-time dating tips that will tell you where to find polyam people and how to make a positive impression, how to date as an existing couple, and if you should, dating as an introvert, queer in dating, and lots more. Get your copy at polyamorydatingguide.com. Do you want to leave us a comment, thought, or have something to contribute to the show, you can now call or text us at the 3W hotline at 513-788-2527. That's 513-788-2527. Or drop us an email at john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. That's john, J-O-N, at datingkinky.com. We can't wait to hear from you. If you don't mind me asking, Ms. Pearl, you have talked about your autism on a couple of occasions during our interview. How does that affect your ability to make connections? Um, a common like myth about people with autism is that they lack empathy and that they're unable to connect with other people. What it commonly is experienced by people with autism, if you ask them, is that everything is turned up to 11 and you're more likely to have problems of things like being able to empathize with the table easily. And that's one of the things they'll use in a criteria. Like, as a child, did you tend to personify everything in your environment and get upset because of things like, I feel like the old bathroom fixtures being thrown away will be sad. Very much the I love lamp type. Um, scenarios. I haven't found that it gets in the way of me having intense and powerful love connections with other people. And I find that it also has a peculiar effect that it's easy for me to connect as a performer with an audience. It is hard for me to feel like I'm part of a group. Does it make a difference in the way you approach your writing? I don't know. I don't have enough common reference with other people writing. I tend to take a very sensory approach with my writing, but other people take different approaches. 
writing, unless you're just doing it for the purpose of a journal, is always also going to be a conversation because there's the presumption of an audience there. Mm -hmm. Although there can be a component where you're just writing to create a universe. What is your writing style? Is it that of a faucet where just everything comes out and you see what's there at the end? Or is it the very methodical edited approach? If you read my blog, editing is not my strong suit in a lot of ways. <laughs> I have a tendency to get full of ideas and belt up and it's like so full of something. Like many of my essays started with arguments with someone on a forum where I realized no one wants to read three pages of theory, copy, paste, edit it into something readable out of that context. And with fiction, when I start writing a story, I start with what I've had described as by other people teaching writing as a boggle. Start with a very visceral feeling and work your way out from there. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoy writing erotica is because you're talking about very strong visceral feelings. And when my porn work is working, it's about the immersion of context and plausibility. How much of erotica, because I've never written any, how much of erotica comes from the mind or how as vis-a-vis -vis how much of it comes from the memory? Meaning is erotica something that you want to have happen or is it the recap of things that you know have happened and you want to be able to give them to the audience? It's a little bit more complicated because some erotica that's being written are things you would never want to happen in a million years for real. Like, I often joke that my pornography is stuff that Amnesty International would send angry letters to your government if it was actually going on for real, which I think a distinction needs to be made that there's a whole ocean of things that you only want to exist in the fantasy space or if you're going to recreate them are, this would be a lovely thing to do for a weekend with safe words and a lot of checking in. The people who know me and also read the lifestyle side of the day-to-day -day part of my blog will notice, huh, you tend to write what you know. And that's true. If I've had experiences, they will feed my erotica in the way that if you're any sort of writer, you will try to do your research to get it better than um, what it would be if you were just guessing. That's not entirely fair. I know that there's one particular like big doorstopper, um, like I described it as an airport novel with the metal foil on the cover, who wrote a lot of things about his idea of fantasy Japan and what it's like. And you, he said he never was going to set fit in Japan because it would spoil um, things to actually deal with the real Japan. But aside from people like that, who I believe was Lust Bader, um, I don't move in the direction of talking about things that I don't know. I try to visualize how it would work. And I try to make things that even if they're in the realm of fantasy and might include things like werewolves or wizards or whatever, have at least one anchor of plausibility in them. Do you have a favorite theme in your writing? Um, there's a couple of things that pop up. Silver, my significant other, noted that I tend to write a character who's the martyrdom um, intentional pun there, where um, they were dominant, but because it's a story, lots of bad things and persecution and pathos, and oh, woe is me, I have a reason why I can't immediately confess to my love to the hero that I'm doing terrible things with, because, so that tends to come up a lot, and 
everything I write tends to more often than not be heterosexual femdom and have themes of that. It tends to be a lot more fluid with the roles and the boundaries. And I would describe it as falling basically into two categories. The Amnesty International would be angry about this and the, this is basically adjacent to real life stuff, which you can imagine a normal couple performing. When you talk about the Amnesty International part of things, has there ever been a piece of writing that scared you that you wrote it? No, I am entirely comfortable with my fantasies and my ability to distinguish between having an idea and a fantasy and wanting to go carry things out. I find it frustrating to deal with the fact that there are people who, for example, I wrote a book recently called Corporate Conditioning that's on Amazon. She says, cleverly plugging her work. <laughs> um, that's a story about um, somebody being kidnapped by an evil corporation and brainwashed. And it is on the face of it, a terrible thing in a dystopic universe. And it's also a femdom office romance. I am grounded enough in reality to know that we don't have mind wiping um, sarcophagi that we got locked in well we're shown pretty light patterns that rewrite our brain and great losses of physical autonomy like if you told me that was what my actual government was doing i'd go to a protest but i don't think writing about it endorses it for real i don't think that would happen in canada you all are too nice i think that that's what we want you to think <laughs> That's one thing that the pandemic has done is I have developed so many Canadian friends and it's a beautiful thing. We are extremely online. We are also the world's leading user of the eggplant emoji. <laughs> the more you know. Yes. Um, per capita, we have one of the highest adoptions of smartphones. And for a while, we were the world's leader in per capita adoption of smartphones. So you're going to find a lot of Canadians disproportionately on the internet, more of Reddit than has any business being Canadian is Canadian. <laughs> Back to your erotica. Do you have a favorite piece that you've written? I would say out of everything that I've done, um, The Pet Gentleman is probably my masterwork as far as things that I have written that endure and continue to sell and continue to sell and have people occasionally write me sadly, well, when are we going to get the sequel? Um, but that one also has the benefit of decent editing. Otherwise, it's hard to pick a darling. There's a few that are forgettable, but um, again, so I sometimes forget the things I title them with. There's one from the perspective of a couple who go grocery shopping and um, the male half of the couple is permitted out of the chastity cage to go edge himself, but no coming. But he has to be back in the cage by the time she leaves. And it's this very mundane, um, extremely plausible story of describing things like him ending up in those single user grocery store washrooms that are also um, accessible for people with physical disabilities um, to do this and him getting completely stuck, not being able to get soft again to get into the chastity cage and freaking <laughs> out because she's texting, I'm leaving without you now, goodbye. Um, that sort of thing is the other thing I like writing. And I'm really happy with um, 
like corporate conditioning because it captured a lot of a mood I wanted, even though with that one, I realized in hindsight and from reader feedback, I had to refile it under romance, even though it's very femdom. Let's take time out to talk about one of my friends, Kitten Flow. She's got a really cool company called Lucky Kitten Colors. It's pet play gear, handmade by a kitten. And I actually have some good kitten friends who absolutely would love these kind of collars. She makes collars adorned with colorful chains and bells of all sizes, adjustable ears and lots of fun neon and pastel colors that will stay on even when you're upside down. Harnesses and tails, harnesses to use with your own tail, and fuzzy heart, tummy crop tops. Everything is made to adjust to almost any body type. She'll also take custom orders if you can dream it. Chances are she can make it. The shop can be found at etsy.com slash shop slash Lucky Kitten Collars. And you can find her on Instagram at Lucky Kitten Collars. And since we know women and other wonderful humans love to save some money, we're going to do that for you. Use the code WANT20 for a coupon for 20% off your purchase. That's WANT20 for 20% off your order just for being one of our listeners to the show. So check out her store, etsy.com slash shop slash Lucky Kitten Collars. Lucky Kitten Collars, fantastic things for pet play. Take it from someone called Catsuit. I want to take a look at your blog in terms of categories, because as you are celebrating, as we uh, air this podcast, your 10th anniversary in blogging, there's so many different things you've written about, and they all start with O. So let's talk about O art. What are some of the favorite things that you've discussed in your O art category? Actually, that tends to be where I put my illustrations. I'm a bit of a polymath. If a polymath was able to do a bunch of things, but bad at all of them. So if you tour in there, you'll get to see my terrible black and white cartooning and digital art. What about the BDSM scene? That's talking about my experience in whatever the local community I'm in is, comments about what parties were like, what I got up to. It's not as active anymore since I moved from Montreal, but I also had an extensive role organizing the 18 to 35 munch for, it's hard for me to tell exactly when I did it because it went on so long, but about five years of running this monthly gathering that ranged from 40 to one memorable occasion, 80 people. Oh, cool. Just things that I wanted to highlight that somebody else did. Do you have a favorite of those? Um, probably the lingerie line that's designed to be mostly unisex, but for people with packages called mm, Wicked out of Montreal. Um, lingerie for people who are not trying to explicitly present femme, but want to have sexy underwear is one of the things I have a bee in my bonnet about promoting and being enthusiastic over because it's such a neglected um, genre of clothing. You have piqued my interest in something because I am one of those people, one of those strange people who does not necessarily not like the naked body, obviously, because I'm called Hi There Catsuit. I love my catsuits. But it seems like there's an alternative here. Talk to me about a little bit uh, uh, more about the 
the lingerie that isn't femme oriented? So one of the problems with how we approach the concept of sexuality in general is very much locked into the idea that it's being done through the male gaze and men are visual, women are not visual. They like um, writing and they like this and they like that. Well, that again is nonsense, but there's very few environments that flip the subject object gaze effect. And femdom is one of those environments where you have more freedom to play with it where the man becomes the object of the gaze and the woman becomes the subject. As far as lingerie for men, again, you end up being very hampered because you have all this language of clothing of straps and garters and lace and layers and what a thong means versus what a pair of vintage knickers mean, what it means to have some French pantalettes and all these things that are decades and decades and decades of conversations about underpinnings. And a lot of people forget that it used to be that complicated for men as well. It's only in the last 100 or so years that we moved to the very boring, you can't possibly wear anything other than your choice of boxers briefs or boxer briefs. Don't get too creative with the color and you can wear either a singlet or a t-shirt if you feel you might get sweaty. And you've lost all these things like sock garters and collar stays and the stays that you'd use to keep your shirt pulled down tighter, which are all underpinnings that have stayed even though they're not necessary in women's lingerie. For the most part, women's utilitarian underwear is something to cover their nethers and something to stop their breasts from flopping around, but you've got to keep the archaic floppings arounds and bits and toggles and bows and other things like that. And there is this tiny collection of things that are not oriented for cross-dressing. Although one of the reasons why men will say they enjoy cross-dressing is because it allows them to enjoy being beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, some people don't want to have to go to the language of the, what they see as the opposite gender in order to be able to feel that and they don't like it. So there's an increasing quantity of things available on the market that are designed for the purpose of allowing men to feel beautiful, handsome, attractive, sexy. A lot of it tends to be provided through the gay market. For example, there's a store that does online sales in Florida called Candyman, which has a cornucopia of available cuts and sizes. And well, there is nothing inherently male or female about a body. I understand like Non-binary identity is also valid. There tends to be more trend towards one thing or another. And with bodies that are male, when you try to cross-dress someone who is assigned male at birth or has gone through gender affirmation surgery to appear as they believe male should be, some things with female cuts aren't going to work. If you put a pair of panties cut for someone who's supposed to have a narrow waist and big hips on somebody who often tends to be either a triangle or a barrel... It's not going to work, but you can find materials you wouldn't normally, for example, lace patterns designed to show off the squareness that men have to cup what is lovingly referred to as the package. And you have lines like mm, wicked, you have various things that cater to the gay market, but also work just as well for the heterosexual one. Like we're talking about the benefits of say the old international male catalog. Mm. It had women who'd read it still back in the day and a continuation of that. And you also have a large quantity of makers on Etsy providing options. And this is also important in the BDSM scene because a common complaint for kinky men, and this is both dominant as well as submissive, is it's all very well and good to say there's all this fetish wear, but most of it is designed for women. Where's the dude stuff? What do I wear when I want to look sexy? And between Silver and I, this is something we really, really value. And it's a fetish that he had before we um, 
became an item, but it's one I've explored with other people. And it's something where I enjoy buying him nice things to wear. And it's not something you normally ever get to do for a guy. I love every bit of that. And uh, I, I may have to investigate some of that because that sounds amazing. Maybe I'll have to send you some links. I'm working on a blog post right now where I've come up with some examples to buy that will be coming out in like the next month or so. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to that. We've come to the category, oh dear. Oh dear? So a lot of my blog is, despite your comment of how I'm sweet and nice, some of the comments other people have said about me include, she's vile. I tend to hold, not hold back in the least when making fun of the truly terrible things uh, people say within the BDSM scene at Advise. I am truly one of those people who is so contrarian and nasty when it comes to calling out what I see as bullshit that I also understand that I will never be for everyone. What is your favorite example of bullshit that you've gone through? There used to be a website that um, called itself Femdom Society that was entirely a scam. And one of the things they offered was they had a Femdom University, one for the guys, one for the men. And I went through all the hot bullshit of what was basically what they were trying to convince was that dominant women should set it up like a dating site. And they will go out to other websites and convince guys to join that website as an act of service. And it was free for the women and pay for the men. But it was building itself up to be this secret society you were part of, kind of like the scam that you pay 25 bucks to be part of a slave registry. Mm -hmm. Well, it was very similar to that. And I went through it and showed how all the information was both wrong, stolen from other sources. The website was not, in fact, a femdom secret society, but belonged to somebody who'd previously gotten in trouble for um, like financial fraud for giving people financial advice when he wasn't. Um, and had them go quite crazy in the comments along with a bunch of the women who'd been quite taken in being like, um, how dare you? You're not high enough in our society to criticize us. That was probably the most fun. Otherwise, um, it is both a good thing and a bad thing that, well, I don't dis, like, I often don't actually hate people I'm arguing with. I just think that they're fundamentally wrong. And a lot of the things that come across as beef are just me being like, yes, but you can say that, but you're still wrong. And that's still not a helpful belief. And that's still not useful. And I know, again, this could make me a very polarizing figure, but like I said, I don't dislike any of the people behind it. I just don't necessarily agree with their behavior. And some of their advice is stupid or wrong or will actively harm people. I like the fact that you stand up to people who are like that. And I love the fact that you stood up to someone having something called a femdom society that was actually a guy. The fact that it was even a guy is not so worrying. The fact that it was clearly a scam that was basically layers of scam, encouraging women to work for a pittance to recruit people um, to get nothing to their benefit. If he had indeed been providing a femdom secret society, more power to him, but he was not. Mm -hmm. 
I can go by O fiction and O nonfiction because that's kind of self-explanatory. But O guide me sounds wonderful. Um, that's just a very... I have a difficult relationship with me giving BDSM advice because I am not a trained sex therapist or anything like that. And I have to keep caveating that I'm not, but sometimes there's just basic advice that it helps to have it out there, like how to give a barehanded spanking, how to improve your femdom profile so that people will look at you, how to deal with this, how to deal with that. And those sorts of things like are useful. And I put them out there because people want them. My most successful article is a pseudo comedic, um, 33 things that every submissive man should know. And that one, Google hits wise, gets the most amount of hits other than my fiction um, every month. And that one is just 33 points of they're all good advice, but some of them may be a little snarky, but nonetheless um, are mostly both protective to doms and protective to sub men. Like when you first meet her, don't kiss her hand. Stop doing that. You have O review, which seems like a fun thing for you to be able to experience. But I have also heard from people like Lexi from uh, Off the Cuffs and and Lady Pym from the Bedpost podcast that sometimes doing reviews isn't all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, the problem with reviews I found is that there's a narrow band of things I review, and those are things that I want to exist in the world. But the problem with that is if I do any criticisms of them, because there's so few content of the kind I'd like to see, I feel like saying, well, there was too many typos in this and it was terrible. To be honest, this is wretched writing, but I'm still glad you tried is going to cause anyone who cares what I think to go home, cry and pull their hard drive out of their laptop and never write again. Or um, go back to the sex toy shore and just clear off all the toy it was that I reviewed, even though it's not their fault. Um, I very much follow the million monkeys at a keyboard school of you just have to do it a lot and then you're going to get the stuff you want. Do you have a favorite toy that you've reviewed? And do you have a toy that you're like, how did this ever get made? Um, I stopped reviewing toys because 99% of what is on the market is how did this ever get made? Like the thing <laughs> that I am most fond of if I had to say anything else, it is the under the bed sports sheet cuff and um, like strap rig. And I like it because it is so idiot proof. It is not marking you as an expert dom. It is not marking you as a, like it's the sort of thing that a person who was immersed in BDSM as a community would sneer that like sniff that's for the weekend warriors, but it is affordable. It is about as safe as bondage can get. And it allows people who don't have the skills to create hard points in their house and don't have a bondage bed and may move around and want freedom to have this available to them. And it is such a good way of adding a little bit of kink to your life that that's probably the toy I like best other than various hitty things. And otherwise, um, as for toys I don't like, um, I haven't reviewed that many objects, but one of the reasons I don't is that the primary people looking for reviews are random um, fly-by-night shipping directly. And I'm not saying that all Chinese manufactured things are crap, just these are like the sort of thing that would end up on Alibaba by wholesale 10 cents for 100. 
um, <laughs> level of terrible. And they're always lying about what they're made out of. Like they'll promise they're hundred percent silicone and they'll be clearly made out of very smelly, jelly rubber, all the things you don't want. And there was one review I was starting to write where it's like, I know that this person is just paying me to basically put links. They are probably not even going to check the review, but also this is very clearly supposed to be biasing me. I'm supposed to be saying this is wonderful. And I just didn't end up doing a review for it because I couldn't say anything other like than like the plastic of these handcuffs makes me nostalgic for my childhood when I'd go to the dollar store and get little police officer sets, which I would then use to turn my large closet as a child into my own dungeon. <laughs> and this is why you've been so amazing for 10 years in writing this amazing blog that uh, we've all enjoyed so much. When you get to O-Self, I'm guessing those are stories from you, but what is the one thing about you that you have revealed on your blog that you never thought you would? I don't think there's anything that I'd put on my blog that I didn't think would ever come up. My blog tends to be simultaneously extremely honest about myself, but I tend to selectively censor what I say about other people. Other than that, there's nothing that I've put on my blog that really surprises me. There's conclusions that I've made as I've kept going, like reconciling where exactly I'm sitting on the whole business of being a sadomasochist, but also apparently just dominant, no submissive capacity, sorry. But other than that, um, it hasn't been any big revelations. And anything that's more complicated, I tend to leave off of there because it involves other humans. And I'm not going to say, have a breakup with someone and then encourage the internet to say, your ex is stupid and terrible and should have bad things happen to them. Like that is not the loving behavior of someone. And I never date someone unless I'm willing to be as kind as possible to them in the breakup. Oh, thinking. Are those things from deep inside your mind? Those are when I'm going out onto a ledge on the things that I'm not an expert about and they're theory essays of why I think things work the way they do. Like you've probably heard me talk about how I don't think that fetishes are abnormal. I think they are the system functioning as it's supposed to. And I think we're supposed to have a capacity towards paraphilia. We're supposed to be able to bond on unusual power dynamics at their extremes, or we're supposed to be able to think certain garments are the height of sexy for either wearing or seeing someone else wear. And oh, whatever. And there's only been two entries in that part, but I just love the fact that there's a, oh, whatever. Just things that I couldn't classify otherwise. For a while, it was the default. Um, there may be some purging of categorizing because a lot of the O nonfiction could be sorted into the other two categories and often something is in more than one category, but, um, oh, whatever is like, I don't know where to put this. And it's happened so rarely that, um, it's really not something I'd say, yeah, you should totally read my, oh, whatever. I did want to talk in particular, since this show began as one about how people connect with each other and eventually became how people connect with their genuine selves. And you wrote a blog entry back in 2013 mm -hmm. called The Big Mistake Even Good Submissive Men Make When Looking for a Femdom. Ah, and yes. to me, this was such an amazing article in the fact that 
it highlighted so many of the mistakes that guys make when they try to find a femdom. Discuss a little bit about what in, went into that particular part of the blog and what was the feedback you got from it? Um, I'm really interested in people. So I spend a lot of time talking to people as individuals and about their experience. Also, if you have any public visibility, particularly if you're female, you will get bombarded with agony ant style, what am I doing wrongs? And I'd notice of all the guys I were talking to as sub men and all the advice they were getting that there was particular patterns that were just screwing them over. And the main thing I noticed was basically them trying to buy femdom activities with service, reasoning that if I give service, then I will get and being constantly miserable because the women they do that to would be like, oh, I guess service is your kink. Me too. No, we're not going to do anything else. Or like basically it would either be that or it would be a covert contract where they'd constantly be upset because their partners would be like, no, I'm not being a like low wage femdom. And the guy would be completely baffled because everything that guys tend to be told about how to be a good male submissive to a female dominant tends to be oriented around how to be a better than average client of a pro. And there is a lot of bad advice around that, that some of it, yes, can be very nice, but there's things like never go to your like sessions or scenes empty handed, always bring something. That's very well and good to say in the context that most pro-doms tend to be fairly enthusiastic if you bring some flowers. They're often happy if you bring flowers and a tip. But if you're like going on a first date with someone and you bring a giant bouquet of flowers, you're likely to make the person you're going on a date with very uncomfortable because you're deviating from your expected dating script. And that's the other thing is that the other big mistake that male submissives make when they're dating is they treat BDSM as this special secret world where they just have to unlock what the magical rules are. And then this door will swing open and all these hot dominant women just waiting around for someone to serve them will be there instead of the reality that BDSM can give us some useful tropes. Like there's things like the collars that can communicate certain kinds of meaning in them. But most BDSM relationships are just normal relationships where you're really both into this hobby that's your sex life. Mm -hmm. And when it comes down to it, it's always about being genuine, knowing the other person, doing things like reading profiles, and also being your authentic self rather than something that you're trying to project on someone as opposed to who you really are. Yeah. And I think one of the other big pitfalls that happens, and I see male subs do this to themselves more than doms, but I also see female doms do it, is the idea that they believe that BDSM will allow them to be the ideal self in their heads. Like a common criticism of a lot of the male submissive fantasies like chastity is that they will bill it as, well, if you lock me in chastity, I will do more chores around the house. And this tends to make the average woman be like, oh my God, you're saying you won't pull your full share unless I do extra work. This does not make me feel sexy or dominant. When I think part of it is that the guy really fantasizes about it because he's grown up in a culture where he's seen that like pop culture is constantly talking about how he's useless. He's a bad partner. He's terrible. 
it's just the same as say Fifty Shades of Grey where she's fantasizing about, oh, if only a dominant man would give me lots of valuable, thoughtful presents that I could say I didn't want and are too much, but I would somehow keep instead of returning them with a letter saying, no, you are making me extremely uncomfortable. Don't do that again. Um, similarly, what you have with the guys being like, and then I did more house chores. It's like, and then I will be the good husband I always wanted to be, and we'll have amazing sex, and I'll be horny all the time. And like, I have a little bit of sympathy there, even if you are basically ruining any chance of both of you enjoying you being locked into chastity if you take the approach of, well, I'll be a better husband if you do it. I think the best subs as well as the best partners. And I will tell you that I recently had a situation where I realized this and it was very much an epiphany moment when it actually came with my ex. It's very much about the fact that when you approach someone with the idea of what you want from the relationship, what actually works is your understanding of what they want. Because it's not about you so much of the time. It's about the other person. Yeah, that one is a tricky place to go into. Because I find that that one also tends to be very gendered. Because if you look at what femsubs complain about male doms, they're similarly complaining he expects it to be all about him at the same time. But I'm thinking about, it was a female-led relationship class that I took by Shirarazad out of a dungeon in Toronto. And now I'm going to kick myself because I should remember what the name of that dungeon was. I am so sorry, Shirarazad. Is it the ritual chamber? It is the ritual chamber, yes. And she was looking at it from the perspective of an FLR and she noticed that the problems the guys tended to have when they wanted an FLR was that they tended to worry about their masculinity if they were doing X, Y, and Z. And the problems that the women had in the relationship was they were not comfortable saying what they wanted. Hmm. And that was the holdup that a lot of would-be doms would be like, well, I can't actually tell him to make how to make me happy. I just can't. And either they'd get mad of, I expect him to know if he cares about me, he will have figured it out as an empathetic problem. Or it will be genuinely like, I went to go do it and I hit this anxious test pattern. It's like, ooh. Um, and I think that that's part of it is I think a lot of people benefit from understanding it's not about what you want. It's about what they want. But the advanced and more mature place beyond that is it's not about what you want and it's not about what they want. It's about what we want. Hmm. And you are a couple when you are able to adequately say, it is about what we want. We want this. We think this. And it might be different things and different motivations for why we as a unit want it. But you're both going to be arriving at the same place you wanted to go if it's working. What we want is to make sure that you are able to be wonderfully successful. So I want you to talk as much as you'd like and plug your latest book because I am sitting here staring at the cover of it and it looks amazing. Corporate Conditioning is available on Amazon. And tell us uh, what, I know you've already talked about it a little bit, but just tell us how great this book is and why we want it. You want this book because I wrote it while I was in the throes of falling in love and getting to know someone. 
And I thoroughly value Silver as being my muse. If you want something that's been written by a dominant from the perspective of a dominant deeply in love, you will get a love story that way. You should buy this book because, well, I did end up sorting it into the romance category because in hindsight, some of the things I find incredibly erotic are not explicitly um, sexual to everyone. <laughs> It is a rare opportunity to see the things of sadism and control while never losing the sweetness and the concern. It is something that allows the characters to experience vulnerability on both sides of the slash. And it's a story about getting to know someone through the contexts of having a great deal of control over them and what a vulnerable position that is. If I had to sum it up in short form, it is about a dystopic cyberpunk future in which anything that you could possibly do to someone's mind is possible to erase. So the mental framework of morality we have around things like trauma has been considerably relaxed, where it is perfectly legitimate to kidnap someone and condition them to whatever you need, where our heroine, um, the with no need to be taking myself seriously at all, named Eudoxia Dollar, which is a bad <laughs> pun about hurt comfort. Um, she works for a company that subcontracts out to take uh, things that the megacorps have demanded this person be captured and held hostage or that person be programmed. And one day her boss sets her up with a contract for somebody and it seems like just a regular job. And she gets very, very, very invested in um, the process of brainwashing this human as in order to get control of him, she has to learn who he is and becomes curious about that. And it's about the connection they both manage to make together, even though he has absolutely no agency. He is in full captivity being brainwashed. And like I said, it's a romance and like all romances tend to, it has a happily ever after. I'm not spoiling it by saying it. If you go into the romance genre, you know what you expect. But that's what positive reviews have been saying. It's about the possibilities of that sort of environment. And I also liked it because it allowed me to transcend a lot of the problems when you're writing femdom is they're in the context of the society we live in. But since I'm writing it in a more accepting society where you're it's just in the background, but people are poly and their boss is non-binary, so you don't have to think about what their gender is and how it affects it. It gives her a lot more freedom to have power and control, but also him a lot more freedom to be male, but also be desirable. It is sounding like a fascinating read that I know a lot of our audience will be very interested in, so I hope they go pick up the book. Oh, if you keep we flattering two... me like that, I'm going to send you an author copy. Oh, thank you. Do I get an autograph too? Um, it's hard to autograph an ebook. Um, oh, I could send you one of my author copies if you wanted autograph, but I need a postal address. I will be more than happy to provide that to you. Yes. What are some of the other ways we can connect with you? And we will have links in the show notes as well. So make sure you check those show note links. And while you're at it, don't forget to um, subscribe to this podcast too. Um, you know you want to. Um, but in addition to that, the best place to find me as a hub is over on my blog where you will find 
10 years of my writing, and I kid you not, when I date someone and we're getting to the what, what are you like enough where I need to know whether or not they're kinky, I just give them the URL as almost like a business card slash resume. Um, I mean, this probably comes from my family because when I first met my father, one of the things he gave me to introduce himself was, I kid you not, literally his resume. Um, <laughs> but um, it's worked extremely well, very well. And other than that blog, which is a huge portion of me, you can find me on Twitter at oh Miss Pearl. You can find me on YouTube where I have my own little YouTube of live streaming on Wednesdays talking about various things. And people apparently say I have a good speaking voice. So if you're wondering what I'm looking like, you can see me squinting into a ring light for all your entertainment and glory. Actually, I'm extremely beautiful. It's one of my many benefits. I'm quite happy about it. I do do self-deprecation, but I think I'm very good looking. And beyond that, the super high quality, you're going to actually get my appreciation and smiling is to support my Patreon with rates ranging from $3 a month to our... Um, very coveted, only a few slots, high caliber Roomba tier. And I was about to ask you, and you have beaten me to it, the final question on our podcast today, why the obsession with a Roomba? Well, because Roombas are awesome, but there's a little bit more of a complexity there. So when you get sent a message that's the equivalent to a dick pic or a come on or to be honest more than dick pics what i tend to find are emotional vampires they have nothing to offer in the conversation but because i'm female and they assume i'm not going to be nice like they, they assume i'm not going to be mean to them so they latch on and try to make me do things like give them bdsm 101 personally right there which sounds perfectly innocuous but then when you have say 20 people asking you in a week to give them three hours of training on how to kink um, that will then end with them asking you if you're interested in playing with them, even if they're sincere about asking for help. You get very tired of it. So whenever I get an inappropriate, unsolicited message, I now ask the person for a Roomba. And the reason why I do that is it's very hard to sexualize a robot vacuum. They're lovely. I think they're adorable. I really like my Roomba, which a fan gave me. I did indeed get a Roomba. <laughs> but they completely put the interaction back into something where I no longer feel what is an event effect harassed i could certainly do other things like i can get mad at the people who send me dick pics but then i'm mad and then they feel justified that all women are bitches or i can ignore them but then i feel powerless and i have people contacting me where i have to hide from them or i can ask them from a roomba and usually the conversations get so bizarre and confused and like it is very hard to continue masturbating to someone when they're enthusiastically going Roomba, I would like a Roomba. And they take the framing of I would like you to dom me with that's nice. I'd really like a Roomba. Roomba are really awesome. Like it's hard for them to steer the conversation. Usually the first thing that comes out is what's a Roomba and about a quarter of them think that I must clearly have a Roomba fetish and start asking if they want me to be their Roomba, which says something about the pliancy of submissive men who are desperate, but also it's always funny, always funny. And if you wanna see some of these conversations, look on Twitter under hashtag Roomba tax, where I anonymize them and then screenshot them. I never knew the whole story, but oh my Lord, I am laughing as hard as I have in a long time. And in Ms. case you're wondering, yes, I do want a second Roomba. My Roomba's lonely and needs someone to play with. Miss <laughs> Pearl, 
absolute joy having you on the podcast. Happy anniversary to you and your blog. And here's to 10 more years of amazing writing and just an amazing person like you are. Thank you. And wow, you nailed that quite well on the timing. I can tell you have a lot of experience with radio. All right. It's been lovely. And just a reminder, if you're listening, remember to subscribe to What Women Want. Miss Pearl is such a fascinating character, and I absolutely love talking to her. I know that you gained some insight today, too. Next week on the show, we go from a lifestyle femdom to someone who is a conscious masochist. Rachel Leadham joins us for an intriguing conversation about what it's like to enjoy the power of pain and accept it as well. We hope you join us for all our shows. You can find them all in the archive and we'd love for you to subscribe. And if for some reason you'd like to, you may leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We sure would appreciate it. That will do it for this edition of What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want presented by Dating Kinky. I'm John, also known as Hi There Katsu, thanking you for being with us. I hope I've earned the privilege of your time and I remind you to always remember consent and to love each other always. What Women and Other Wonderful Humans Want connects with you. Leave us a message at 513-788-2527. And we invite you to follow us on social media. Check us out at What Women Want P1 on Twitter, What Women Want Podcast on Instagram, and for our kinky friends on FetLife at Podcast. This has been a presentation of Dating Kinky. We're kinky done differently.